0: Welcome to season two. We are so glad that you are continuing on this podcast journey with us. For this season, we are changing it up a bit and are creating different series on topics dear to our heart. To start us off, we are interviewing three Asian American moms who are faith and spiritual leaders in our communities. We are also proud to announce that this first series is sponsored by New Hope Covenant Church in Oakland as part of their True Home Grant. We hope you all enjoy listening and learning from our amazing guests. Hi, everybody. This is our third and final episode in our series, Talking to Asian American Faith Leaders. To close out the series, we interview Emily, a Taiwanese mom, who talks about her journey of following her God-led curiosities in life that brought her to the Bay Area and to serve as a Methodist pastor. Emily shares how she has come to see her leadership style as a mix of vulnerability, audacity, and being her authentic self. She also recounts ways she has subtly worked to increase awareness about issues of race and justice by inviting congregants to widen their perspectives. Throughout our conversation, Emily's sense of warmth, graciousness, and humility shines through And we appreciate how she really embodies her values of centering and prioritizing community, family, and being in relationship with one another. Thanks for listening.
1: You are listening to the Oakland Asian Mom Podcast.
0: welcome everybody to the next episode of Oakland Asian mom podcast. And today our guest is a long time friend of mine, uh, Emily, who will be introducing herself soon. Uh, But um, Emily has been a pastor um, from the Methodist denomination in different spaces. So we're here to hear to hear about her journey there. And so Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here. So we open up our podcast and ask folks to introduce themselves um, by sharing about their ethnic and cultural roots. You know, where did you grow up and what places would you call home? And then in terms of your family, how would you describe your partner and kids in terms of their race and identity? Oh. Great question.
2: You know, I, I was I, that's the only question that I was holding on to today as I was coming into the space, particularly, I think, because of the shooting that just happened yes. down in Orange County. And so um, I grew up in Taiwan. My father's Taiwanese and my mother um, was German-American. But I grew up in Taiwan and, and came to the States um, after high school. And then I, I married a second-gen Taiwanese-American. Um, from the Bay Area. And so our kids identify as Taiwanese American also. And I, I um, you know, it's just that interesting time of thinking about what is mm-hmm. Taiwanese and Taiwanese American identity um, juxtaposed with Chinese, Chinese American identity, and how do they, how are they in conversation? But Taiwan is definitely home. The Bay Area is home for the last 20 years. And Um, there's also other pockets in the States that I've spent time that I have a connection to like Chicago and middle Pennsylvania,
0: um, Mm -hmm. but I don't know
2: that I'd call them home.
0: Yeah. And I know that your mom is of German descent. Yes. And part of the Mennonite community. Yeah. 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 We all know this (laughs) information about each other for other reasons, but, um, (laughs) when we heard about that, um, you know, how has that influenced your identity? Uh, that's an interesting question well so I think the biggest
2: thing about my mom well lots of lots of influences she passed last year and so Mm -hmm. I still have sort of a really tender spot Mm -hmm. and and I'm still processing well what are the gifts that she brought to me certainly spirituality and faith Mm but kind of in her grounding in the Mennonite tradition I think um, pacifism and really a deep commitment to nonviolence, and conversations about what that is and the other thing is, I think simplicity yeah. was another value that's highly held in the Mennonite community. Um, and then I, I think Mennonites more than other folks, at least as I was growing up, and then in my sort of formative years of college, college faith formation, um, really felt like Mennonites were folks that were deeply committed to uh, living out sort of, uh, the difficult words of Jesus and the way hmm. of Jesus um, in a way in a social community yeah. form that that I hadn't seen before. Um, and so that, that's another gift that I, that I hold dear.
1: Emily, yeah. um, when did your mother's side immigrate to the United States from? Oh my goodness. Do that's you know? a good
2: question, sir. I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of, a lot of German um, folks and sort of like German-Dutch folks came out of out of I think, um, I don't know, late 17 1800s-ish. Um, but I that side I know much less
0: about.
1: Mm-hmm. But it, it, it's like multiple generations. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've mentioned that you have held many pastoral roles, uh, being a pastoral leader in a church at Chinatown and then one in Alameda. And so how has your identity, you know, just uh, piggybacking off that question, shaped your journey into being a pastor? Yeah.
2: Um, and are you are you thinking um, most specifically about sort of Asian-American, Asian identity in terms of yeah, that, that or
0: any other parts of your of your identity that yeah. you want to bring forth? Yeah. So the, the way
2: I came to the Bay Area was actually through a young adult program of the United Methodist Church. It was sort of my first foray into the United Methodist Church. It was called the Mission Intern Program, where I spent 15 months in the Gaza Strip, Palestine, before being placed at, in Alameda at Buena Vista United Methodist Church, a historically Japanese-American mm-hmm. congregation. And I think it was really there at... Um, of this that I began to sense a pastoral call, and that coincided with a lot of processing both about my own faith and who I was as a Christian, but also who I was as an American. Um, because having grown up outside of the U.S. and then spending um, a lot of time continuously after college outside of the U.S. also, I don't know, there was tension for me about like claiming the U.S. And then mm-hmm. so that Asian-American part of the identity was sort of in flux and in formation. Um, And I I think Buena Vista really helped uh, clarify and discern and make clear for me this sense of Asian American identity wasn't just about the way I looked or where I came from, but there was actually a political identity that came with it that I that I related to a lot, having grown Mm -hmm. up with a father who was very deeply involved in politics in Taiwan. And so that was helpful. And, and so as those came together, I think it was just the sense of the, the community calling me forward um, <laughs> and in inviting me to consider. I, <laughs> I hadn't considered it. I come from education. I love education. I, I really related to an educator's identity. Um, but feeling like there was something there. And so it was, it, you know, my whole pastoral journey really is like, one step in, mm-hmm. let's see what this is about. Then step, you know, it's almost like just being present and showing up and allowing it to unfold. And that's what took me then from Buena Vista to Chinatown and now to Twin Towers.
1: And Emily, was yeah. your placement at Buena Vista coincidental or were they trying to place you as an Asian-American woman in a historically Japanese-American congregation? Yeah, that's congregation?
2: a great question. So um, the way it happened was, they, I had two very atypical placements. The first one in the Gaza Strip was atypical, according to them, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. and I was, I was really interested in conflict resolution and peace types of work at that time and did something totally different, right? I taught English, did grant writing, and just basically hang out, hung out. And when I came back, there was sort of a two month break where we were, the whole intern class was invited to consider different placements. There were no other placements at local churches. They were all with NGOs and organizations and CBOs. But there was this one, and um, I was actually offered an internship at Asian Immigrant Women Advocates in Chinatown. Oh, Kewa, yeah. Right?
0: yeah. Um,
2: and again, you know, usually they try to, they try to kind of connect your, your uh, international placement with your kind of home placement, right? And mine mm-hmm. were kind of like totally separate. Um, But were they they thinking about that? It ended up that um, there was an intern that was finishing up her time at Buena Vista. And I was encouraged to call her and talk with her about her experience. Um, And I ended up just asking about that. And she began to tell me about uh, the pastor at the time, Michael Yoshi, and described him as like this amazing mentor. She was Mm -hmm. not Asian, Asian American herself. And I had never had a mentor in my life. I never even thought about having mentors in my life. But there's something about that that deeply resonated. And so even though I think I was more interested in the work of Awa, I ended up just kind of yeah. taking this leap of faith into, uh, you know, like, let's let's see what this mentorship is about, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, I mean, I, I think this goes back to this, your previous question, like, how did you end up a pastor in some ways? Or how is that? And there's a phrase that some people use that um, uh, the, the surest sign of God is that you'll end up where you never expected to go. Mm-hmm. And and I, I relate to that because it literally is like, oh, uh, there's a hunch that pulled me forward. It wasn't like, oh, I have a, life goal that's calling mm-hmm. me for was like a hunch about a mentor so I did this a hunch about that and and did that and things just kind of unfolded from there
0: mm-hmm. well what I understand from you know our past conversations is that being a pastor in the Methodist denomination you're actually being sent for in certain maybe a certain finite number of years right I'm very used yeah. to that as a, a growing up Catholic um, we had past we had you know priests or elite pastors who would be here for like 7 years or that you know and so um when you were placed in Oakland Chinatown and then again in in Alameda what were what were the hunches that you received i mean it's a little <laughs> bit of like okay there's your assignment but then on the other side there must be some hunches or nudges yeah. and so what was that like for you um cuz that represented a lot of transitions from yeah. i mean it's still they're literally probably like less than five miles away from what, what yeah. we talked before before is the congregation could be, could be more, any more different, right. In terms of proximity, location, history. Yeah. So can you just share any stories or anything of that time um, during those transitions?
2: Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think regardless of whether, whether I, I am a pastor or became a pastor, I think there's always been this deep, desire and longing to follow God and to sense that um, I am doing that and I I say those words with caution because I can't I don't pretend to know what that actually means or looks like and it always I'm like one of those people that always feels like um, it's not it's never clear but it's sort of like just take another step in Mm -hmm. the direction Mm -hmm. that you sense is being invited Right. And so I, I never, I never get a clear sense of like the end goal, but I do have usually a sense of the next step. Um, and so when I, when I, um, I had gone to seminary and intentionally got off the MDiv pastoral track, right. <laughs> Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, well, who are these people? They seem crazy. I, you know, <laughs> um, and so I, I really, you know, actually dug into the educational piece and looked at like the intersection of Theology and education, and all of that. But over time, kind of just being drawn further, further into the life of the church. And when I was called to move to Chinatown, it was only after one year of appointment, in oh. pastorally at one of his, I'd been there eight years, but then one year. And it was following like turmoil because uh, Michael had a heart attack mm-hmm. that year. I got married, you know, like all this transition already. And then I got this call. And it just felt like very bad timing. And yet I sensed that, you know, there was something um, having lived in the Middle East and and been surrounded and sort of breathing uh, Islam and Islam being about submission, there's also something about like obedience. And you know, mm-hmm. I, that's usually the more the Christian term, whereas in Islam it's about submission. that calls to me, right? And so when that call came, I was kind of like, well, Um, I've never cried so much. I've never felt so sad, but it was this sense of like, let's see, let's see what it means and what will, what will God do with my best attempt at being obedient and submitting Um, to this sense of not, and I, I, again, I, I don't, I'm not somebody that talks about God's will so much, but the movement of God. Mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. and so the same thing happened nine years into my time at chinatown i wasn't ready to move i didn't ask to move um and there was this call um
0: and, like a literal, literal so the, phone call right like a literal, yes, phone a literal call. Phone call. okay yeah
2: you will believe <laughs> uh, and I, again it's it's that sense of trusting that Trusting that God is everywhere. Mm -hmm, Right. It's not mm -hmm. just here. And so should I go somewhere else? It's not like God's going to leave me Um, and that I can I can still show up and God will still show up. And so I I go with curiosity, I think, is the best way of saying it, even even in the grief. Right. There's curiosity of how God will show up for me.
0: Yeah, because, um, you know, uh, our church who is sponsoring this podcast um, is going through some transitions, you know, well, all churches and communities have gone through so many changes because of COVID, right, figuring that yeah. out, how to be safe, um, how to hold spaces, and but we are, you know, shifting to a co-pastoring model, and trying to figure out how do we flatten out, you know, kind of leadership in a way that's really equitable, and really uh, affirms the strengths of our leaders, right? And so in the many transitions you've been part of in these church congregations, are there any sort of lessons learned regarding self-care or any bit of advice that you can share that was helpful for you or helpful for for your fellow members during those times?
2: So just the sense of like, what, what, what have I felt Um, supportive and meaningful and helpful along the paths of transition
0: within community. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, particularly when, well, you, you were the leadership, but, you know, maybe even as a leader being in transition, either leaving and entering new league of space, entering a new one, or as a person yourself, as maybe a member, you know, what would you kind of share how, how they would care for themselves during it's sort of like an uncertain time, you know, yeah. And we know all organizations, churches are or not, go through these shifts, right? It's the life cycle.
2: Yeah. Hmm. Well, um, I, I'm going through a transition myself right now with, with the congregation because I'm going on leave um, at the beginning of July and a new pastor is coming in. Hmm. And one of the the ways that we've tried to walk with gentleness and tenderness, I think through it, is by by opening space very specifically, just to name grief. Yeah. right? And And I think you know, even as you think about the technicalities and functionality of leadership and and especially big questions like equity and and um, uh, new ways of being community, I think there's still the real, true human connection and relationships that people have with each other. And with pastors and and how those all shift, right? Um, And so being able to have space for for folks to name that, but for me too, right? And and to receive that as a gift for me. Um, So I've been sitting in different circles with people that are just sharing kind of things that I, I would never know, Right? Mm. As a pastor, you're kind of just going along and maybe once in a while, somebody will say, hey, Emily, um, this made a difference to me, or, or this is how I've changed or shifted, or this is an insight I came to because of some of the work we did together. Um, these are like sort of tender and wonderful moments of people sharing that. But I yeah. think in sharing that, naming it and, and kind of feeling the grief, then that sense of like, okay, you take a deep breath and you're able to say, okay, so what's next, right? I get because I, I, I think we're not, we're not good at saying goodbye, right? Yeah, we're not yeah. good at saying goodbye to people or to ways of being, and mm-hmm. so maybe there's also uh, uh, saying goodbye and, and appreciating and acknowledging the ways in which some the way it has been has contributed to us, right? Not to say we want to keep it forever, but just to say, okay, that was that was the good. Like that was the grace. And I can I can give thanks for it. Makes me think of Marie Kondo. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. That, that sense of like, okay, I say thank you to you. And then I can say goodbye. <laughs> right? Um, so I don't know. So that's 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 definitely one thing. Um I don't, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, it's just to, it's to be good to the relationship because after all mm. the ministry and other stuff goes, it's the, I, I want, I want to have really solid, meaningful, faith-filled relationships,
1: right? Yeah, that yeah. reminds me of this. Uh, your kids are probably too young, both. Um, emily and cheryl but um there's a show called bluey and it's about dogs (laughs) it's for kids (laughs) and and one of the lessons is like do you want to play with your little sister or do you want to be right you know like Mm, that's a good question (laughs) yeah you know we i think about that my husband and i think about that a lot because there are so many times when we just want to be right but being right is not what is um serving to the relationship. So yeah. I don't know some, something about you describing that reminded me of Bluey. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah. And and that reminds me, Sarah, of um, the whole body of Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication work, mm-hmm. right? And, and that the fundamental thing is like when we get into conversations of right or wrong, then we actually, we forget that we just want to be connected and contribute to each other. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah. So. so maybe the writers of Bluey also read Marshall yeah. Rosenberg. <laughs>
2: I'm going to look them up. I like that. I like that one lesson already. We need it in our
0: house, man. And I'm going to use that and we'll see how it goes. Cause maybe they'll be like, I don't want to play. I just want to be right.
1: Yeah. And sometimes <laughs> that sometimes, is, yeah, yeah, that's just what the overwhelming thing that you want, but it, it kind of reframes the a situation or a conversation sometimes. Like what's the more important value overarching value. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I think it also can introduce humor, right? Because when you can say to whoever you're in kind of like a conflict with that, like, I just want to be right, here, (laughs) then it's like it becomes hilarious. It's like, oh, my God, I can't even believe I'm saying that. Right.
0: (laughs) Well, if you said it that way because of your wonderful smile and your, you know, your, you know, um, but I'm sure with different tones and different postures, (laughs) it would just increase the frustration.
2: No, I hear that. I hear that.
0: (laughs) You know, you've been a pastor for a while. Can you say like decades worth of being a pastor? Yeah. Yeah. So if you look over your time, if you're doing a little like a mini reflection, um, have, you know, what are the joys? You've mentioned a little bit when people come up to you and say, hey, you know what? Um, Because of this interaction or this something that you said led me to that, that I can imagine that could be a joyful thing. You know, what are the joys? What are the challenges, you know, more, more and more recently, I'm thinking spaces and faith spaces or communities have been really re-examining, you know, their values of um, how, do, how are we acting as an anti-racist congregation? You know, how are we continuing to pursue racial and social justice? So you have any tidbits around that too? Yeah.
2: Well, um, I, 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 I suddenly I was taken back to one of the very first conversations that sort of unfolded at Buena Vista while I was there. Um, And it's because during sort of in the nine years that I was there, they brought back a conversation about uh, inclusion around LGBTQIA Mm -hmm. um, uh, folks and and kind of taking a stand in that way, right? Sort of if we think about inclusion as a whole, whether it's anti-racist, anti-colonial. and it was interesting cause there was a moment where I was just so furious at the way the conversation was happening. And I was, you know, that moment where you're like, oh, I can't believe how some people are thinking about this and the things that come out, you know, that kind of thing. And I had a really great conversation with uh, my partner who we weren't married at that time. And he asked a really interesting question and maybe it's a derivative of this idea. Do you wanna be right or do you wanna be connected? Mm -hmm. Because he asked about like, is the community more important or is the issue? Mm -hmm. And that was like a moment for me to like actually gasp and take it back because uh, um, I think that's a good question to keep in front of us as we think about the work that we do. And I, I think at different times in Christian community, we're not really skillful actually at sorting that through and really holding like, well, is this issue really important to me and why? But it's always in community that those issues become important, Mm -hmm. right? It's not just like me and myself and unconnected to other people. And so just thinking about that, I think it's joyful when we have hard conversations and can come out on the other side, um, sensing deeper connection. Right. That's one thing. And then I think it's also joyful to build skillfulness around around hard, courageous conversations. Right. So people confronting themselves, becoming more self-aware. And and, you know, I the the funny thing is somebody just said to me recently out of these circles of transition that we've been having. Oh, Emily, it seems like a lot of your work is is the kind that is not, um, you know, like, It's not the kind of work that you can write down, like, "Oh, she met these ten outcomes, Mm -hmm, right?" mm -hmm. And she was successful in doing this. But that there are these these very um, subtle cultural shifts that have been happening. For example, in a in a majority uh, white congregation that that I currently uh, pastor or that the tenor of the conversation has changed or the relationships have changed Mm -hmm. so that we can have those conversations, right? And sometimes I kind of get down on myself, like, what have I been doing these last four years? It's no, you know, like I have nothing to show for it. Um, And then again, that sense of like, but the joy has been in really trying to be um, authentically me, faithful and loving. Um, mm-hmm. And love people into new places, right? Mm-hmm. And, and have people love me into new places too, right? <laughs> um, so I think that's some of the joy. And, and it's, it's, it's kind of also the joy of learning to be vulnerable and audacious all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know what, what that is. I think I probably have to unpack that a little bit more. Um, but it's challenging because churches move slowly and especially these churches with longer history, right? Yeah. People get into relationships and they, they get comfortable. They have no interest in being uncomfortable. And so I, I feel like uh, a lot of things become sort of like under under the carpet, right? And so some of my work I feel like is lifting it up just a little bit for a little air to get in there and then putting it back down yeah. and then picking it, but that's slow work, right? And, and sometimes, it feels like the context is much more urgent than what we can do by just lifting the carpet and putting it down, right? So that's the that's probably the challenge and frustrating part.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but
1: Emily, you mentioned um, you're currently pastoring a majority white congregation. Um, yeah, guessing elderly or you guessed correctly. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I mean, this is going a little bit off our uh, our script, but can you share a little bit about, you know, introducing or growing, you know, anti-racist consciousness in that context or, um, you know, decolonized faith or just some practices that might, you know, to me might be flourishing there. I don't want to assume that it's not, but Um, yeah, I'm just wondering, like, what are some of the the things that you, you've been grappling with, um, in terms of like those types of issues in your current church community?
2: Yeah. I mean, one of, one of the places that I think first is just how to help people to, um, read and engage scripture in a much more curious, um, an unassuming way, mm-hmm. right? And and um, and and inviting people to consider that scripture has been read, and understood, and held dear by other people differently from them, in radically different ways, mm-hmm. right? And so I feel like that's. Uh, I, I would say, um, just in looking back, not conscientiously or consciously, but my style is probably much more in that that style of just like, hey, let me show up and do the kind of work that I do, and hope that people kind of um, begin to uh, feel nudged or shift or mm-hmm. invited into something different. And so there's there's sort of that right when we when we open scripture and we notice details that uh, you know maybe have never talked about. I mean, this is these are scriptures that we go over and over and over, and it, and so, what does it mean when we read it in a new way um, that challenges our assumptions from before? Mm-hmm. Right. So that's one, um, and then I, I think just just um, uh, I've encountered a lot of. I, some micro and some not so micro aggressions around different ways of people interacting with me, both as Asian American, but also as a woman, mm-hmm. right? And and then being able to um, gently but clearly step into that with somebody, I, I think is an is another way, right? And so um, I, I think one of the things that's happened is that far more people of color and People of color leadership um, leaders have have been um, lifted up in the congregation than ever before. Oh wow! Right? Yeah. And so, and you know, like I'm in the process as I'm leaving of really inviting the youngest person ever and also um, a person of color to step into like the council chair position, mm-hmm. right? Not, and I'm not doing it because oh, they're like a person of color and so young, but because this person is the most gifted and called forth for this time, right? And so I, I've, even in doing that encounter resistance, not always explicitly because of race or other reasons or ageism or whatever, but it challenges the way and who we see as leaders within the mix, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so, um, when I came, there might've been similar make makeup of like uh, the next uh, largest grouping is of Filipino families, right? Mm-hmm. Wonderful participants, but none invited into leadership. Strange, mm. right? <laughs> um, and so as I'm leaving, I, I, I feel like, oh, actually that has entirely changed, right? So uh, sort of if we looked at the leadership map now, the makeup, Is very different um, than it was when Mm -hmm. I stepped in.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
0: Well, maybe we should just also shift another gear and ask a little bit about how motherhood has impacted this journey. Um, You mentioned that you were, you know, your kids are like elementary school. So you've been a pastor before, during, and after. So, how has mothership, motherhood, impacted your, either your personal faith life or your roles um, that you're a part of, or your leadership too? I should ask your leadership.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, 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 don't know if this was like the most insane and misguided uh, <laughs> hope ever, but um, when it, when, when we were talking about having kids, uh, I think there was a part of me that was like, oh, having kids will really disrupt and call into question my tendencies to be a workaholic. Oh, right. <laughs> wow, and, yeah. and so that'll be great. Like having kids will be obvious because I want to make different choices than perhaps one or the other my parents have made. And I will all, you know, um, and that I would say that's been an interesting uh, unfolding as we've gone because I, I feel like um, motherhood has both uh, depleted my capacity mm-hmm. and stretched it out infinitely, right? Like this mm-hmm. strange contracting and expansion that has happened. And so um, that's one one thought that I would have in just in terms of leadership. But I also, I, I, I feel like it's also helped me and pushed me to be much more clear about boundaries mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and to to want to live into the truth that my family is the most important to me, yeah. right? Even yeah. above the work that I do in, in the community, that there is something that I value. So that, that tension or dissonance that can come up sometimes when my, my family calls that into question, like I don't, you know, like if they feel like too many meetings in the week, right, at night or whatever else is um, the other, in, in terms of personal impact, I think um, we went on quite a journey uh, in order to have kids, and so that whole unfolding around fertility and infertility and faith and how do we how do we invite God into that process and be with be present to God and the mm-hmm. possibility of life and what does it mean? Um, I I don't know. I probably should do more more thinking and work around that too. I, I think what it just reminds me of is uh, because of how difficult it was uh, for us to get pregnant and the way that um, the kids came to us, I have twins, that if I can, in different moments, right, as as much as they're driving me crazy and I blame them for all my white hair, um, <laughs> it's, it's almost this sense of like, if I can just take a step back and being like, oh my God, they are literally God's gift to us, Mm, mm -hmm. right? Then it's this moment of like wonder and gratitude and reverence that then regrounds me in like, okay, this is what I'm about. They're what I'm about, right? Um, So I I think that that has something to do with faith, doesn't it?
1: You tell me. (laughs) Well, Emily, if you weren't working as a pastor,
2: what
1: what do you imagine yourself doing professionally if, if, you know, different doors had opened for you?
2: Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. And it's especially interesting now, as I kind of come into this time of leave. Um, I, I, I want to sit with that not too quickly. Uh, Recently, somebody introduced me to Um, I I'm missing her name, but she, she's like a pastor out of Atlanta that has the nap ministry. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've I've heard of that. I
0: haven't
2: Mm -hmm. haven't read too much, but one of the things that um, a colleague was sharing with me was just this idea that within, within rest, dreams arrive mm-hmm, right and so mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm kind of been in the slog and like okay taking care of my dad who's dementia being a mom to my kids being a partner being a pastor and it's almost that sense of like oh the possibility that life holds and what God might call out of that hasn't isn't clear right now Mm-hmm. um so I, I think anything that would just allow me to be with people this is so lame right but be with people and and uh, be in the work around building authentic community and community that is about healing and wholeness and transformation you know i, I I'd be willing to kind of try try my hand out I, I don't pretend to have a lot of skill but i I think I can be present with people right so I dream Um, of going back to the classroom once in a while, or becoming a barista, Uh, making coffee, or owning a bookstore. (laughs) Oh, that'd be good.
0: All those things could be possible. We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) And there's always space at the podcasting chair here with us. If you want to be another interviewer, (laughs) we could always outnumber our guests. (laughs) Three,
2: three to one. Nice, good ratio. I'll take that into consideration. Thanks so
1: much. <laughs> I actually think you'd be a great podcaster. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You have a way with words, and um, also I can sense sort of like a countercultural essence in you. Like, mm. you know, in the Bay Area in particular, like people are so busy, and like it's all about efficiency, mm. about getting mm-hmm. stuff done yeah. quickly. Yeah. And you seem comfortable with a slower pace of, um, you know, and and that's how you know precious things unfold a lot of times, right? It's slow. Yeah. It's not, it's not efficient, right? And so, anyway, yeah, I really appreciate kind of um, learning from from you oh, in this conversation.
2: Thanks. thanks. I, I'm 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 having fun, and I, I feel like there's learning on my side too, for sure. <laughs>
0: So we're going to wrap up um, this episode by asking you, um, you know, we usually call this a closing segment. um, Two questions is what is your favorite Asian mom saying something that either you say to your kids or your German mom saying to an Asian kid, because that's your context. (laughs) And then the second question is what was a really nourishing practice for you this year?
2: yeah so i'm gonna I'm gonna start with this the second question first. Um, and we were just laughing about this. So a uh, uh, nourishing practice that i that I just discovered was the delight of k dramas. I'm coming late to the yes, game. I know yes. right. everybody's been on it for decades, but um but you know, why would I call it a practice? I mean, it's not a practice in, in terms of a whole bunch of things, but I, I think there is something nourishing for me about them in their in kind of connecting to a, a sweetness and an innocence and a tenderness mm-hmm. that I don't think we we kind of value actually in generally in American shows, right? And it's this, it's not just between two people, kind of the romance of it, although there is that but there's a way in which it extends through community, right? Mm-hmm. So Sarah had introduced me to one that I, I've just started and just watching the community come together and the, how they take care of each other, and rub each other, but learn from each other, take take care of their kid, You know, like it really is that sort of um, a different style, I guess, of of life um, and, and the values that come forth that, that helped me just kind of like, take a deep breath mm-hmm. and remember like, I can live that out too, right? It's not, and so it's like that silliness of like, oh, does this make it seem like, you know, like in terms of TV, oftentimes we'll say, oh, it makes you want, it makes you much more materialistic, right? Cause you see this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. But I feel like K-drama actually helps me have a longing and a trust in the tenderness of, oh. of connection. And so yeah. to try to practice that then, is the good side of what comes out of that.
0: Yeah, that said, I, I feel like uh, the KJ, I haven't watched them. So maybe this is my, my turn. It's never too late. And when you late. describe the tenderness, I wonder it's like, well, Asian American, um, you know, cultures or communities are not known necessarily to be tender, right? Yeah, it's not like, that's true, oh my <laughs> gosh, that's a, such a stereotype of Asians. Like, being tender and affectionate and right. like expressive and loving. Right. But maybe, like you said, the K-dramas will somehow or are beginning to kind of make its impact and hmm. kind of becoming part of the psyche of mm-hmm. what, you know, like mm-hmm. saying, oh yeah, mm-hmm. it's okay to express this or it's okay. Because I think right. you mentioned that you watch it with your partner. Yeah, I
2: do. <laughs> Most of the time, except i plowed ahead on this last one. <laughs> um, it is true. So we watch it together yeah. And, and there's there's a lot of where I feel like the humor is, I don't know, it's not just about tenderness. There's also a reconnecting to what feels like innocence, mm, right? Mm-hmm. And so that sense of like, oh, relationships actually can build without like all of the physicality necessarily that people seem to rush into and that mm-hmm. like consummate it so quickly, in yeah. much more, you know, like Western style things, but there's sort of that the watching friendships develop, oh, or yeah. watching, you know, like friendships that turn into that. Um, yeah, <laughs> I know. Maybe I, I just got to watch I,
0: it. I just yeah, got. Right.
2: No, it's really sweet. <laughs> and so, what's a what's a what's an Asian mom saying? Um, I I think I I stole this from a book. I have really enjoyed reading books with kids, like discovering mm, kids yeah, books. I yeah. think over maybe that's a spiritual practice too. Um, there's so, there's so many good messages, right. In kids yeah. books that I feel like adults need too. but one of them is like, it, I think it's kind of going on a bear hunt. And so we say it a lot at home. Um, you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You can't go around it. You got to go through it. you yeah. got to go through it. And um, it's my it's my encouragement for our kids to, not like when fear comes up or when big feelings mm-hmm. come up, to not swat them away or not to act out of them, but to kind of like take a deep breath and then, go through it right yeah walk continue to take the person's hand and walk through it or or it could be them like they really want to stand in front of the whole school assembly and do Mm. something but they're so scared Uh, Um, can they go through it instead of like not doing it which is what I chose to do as a kid right
0: Um, maybe part two would be um going through it together With like community, you know, because there is some of this like um, safety in numbers when you get to do it with a friend or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And that's true. That happens in the book too. Oh, it does. Okay. that's a Good point. That's a good point.
0: Since we've been talking about community and being connected. Yeah. Today. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Gosh, we really appreciate your time and then your energy and all your wisdom that you're sharing with us today not at all pleasure
1: take care and don't forget to call your mom